The first Bible reading for today is Psalm 45, which, if you have a black church Bible, is on page 882, and it will also be up on the screen. For the director of music to the tune of lilies of the sons of Korah, a mascal, a wedding song. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite the verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace, since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously, in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, from places adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those brought to be with her. Led in, joy with jo- led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them the princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. The second reading is Psalm 110, and it is on page 951 of the Church Bibles. Of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you, like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Thank you, Jono and Melissa. Um, Now, it's really important that you have access to a Bible uh, during this time. Hands up if you haven't got access to a Bible. Uh, because you'll need one open in front of you throughout this service. Paul, here's one for you. Pass that down to Paul. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Make sure he gets one. That's good. Um, someone down there, Phil's going to fix that up. Great. Let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, we thank you that now we can come to your word, your living word, which speaks to us and speaks into our lives, although on first reading it may be difficult to understand how. So we thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired these words and who preserved them and is now present to open our, our eyes 
and to illumine our minds. And so we ask for his help that we'd understand exactly what you want us to hear so that we may appreciate Jesus more and have faith in him. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, I wonder how you would describe this church. Oh, it's a good church. Yes, yes, but what sort of church is it? Ah, it's friendly, it's, uh, it's loving church, it's welcoming. Yeah, yes, good, excellent. But what sort of church is it? Ah, okay, digging deeper. Uh, Protestant. Well, that just means not Roman Catholic, that's very general. Um, what sort of church is it? Anglican. I think it's Anglican. You wouldn't really know, but I think it is. All right. Anglican in Adelaide can almost mean anything. Uh, what sort of church is it? Evangelical. Ah, right. Does that mean like Hillsong in Sydney, like on the television? Well, no. Yeah, I mean, yes, no. Uh, okay. Uh, what sort of church is it? Um, it's a Trinity Network church. Well, if, you, if you're not in the know, that doesn't mean a whole lot either. Come on Wednesday night, you might be in the know. Um, what sort of church? It's a reformed evangelical church. Well, that might, uh, if you said that, that might just foster a look of confusion. Uh, we're getting closer, but who uses words like that? 50 years ago, maybe. But today, Christians, by and large, have moved on. And in one way, that's a good thing. Uh, so we know that our identity is in Christ. There's, we're Christian first, denominational or whatever tagline, second. Uh, so here at Trinity Church Aldgate, we have ex-Lutherans, ex-non-churches, ex-Salvation Army, Baptist, Uniting, Catholic, AOG, Brethren, Anglican, and apologies if I've left your particular <laughs> brand out. Okay, um, and, in, and isn't that wonderful? In heaven, there's not going to be like a different room for Anglicans or Baptists, right? We'll be there in Christ. We are Christians in him. So that is healthy. We know our identity, don't we? Or do we? Do we? Because do we accept everyone that calls themselves Christian? Is it wise to do so? Didn't Jesus say there would be some people who thought they were Christian on the last day who would be Surprised, and he warns his disciples about such people, meaning have your antenna up. Okay. Uh, well, therefore, what marks the boundaries of what is okay and not okay to believe? And you might say the gospel, of course. That is true. We are saved by the gospel. We have unity and fellowship in the gospel. But that begs the question, isn't it? What is the gospel? Ask different Christians, you get different answers on this. Uh, is it okay just to define our own gospel or is there a set of beliefs which tell us what the gospel is? Uh, we do need clarity on this. And is it okay, once we know what the gospel is, to add things to it because Christians believe all sorts of different things and they hold them very dear? What happens if you've got a secondary thing which is not a gospel thing but it gets elevated to primary importance? Is this adding to the gospel in a way which might be dangerous. Well, we remember Paul's words when he spoke, when he wrote to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel uh, by adding to it different things. And he really gives them a pretty strong serve. In fact, he says, if anyone does that, let him be eternally condemned. 
That's a very strong serve. It's not okay to add to the gospel. Okay. Uh, I think, therefore, uh, in sort of abandoning titles or word descriptors of what sort of Christian we are and just opting for Christian, uh, on the one hand it's good, but on the other hand it does put us in a bit of an identity crisis. Uh, We need clarity. By wanting to be inclusive, we need clarity, to regain clarity on what is the gospel that unites us. Because the reality is, if you're not clear about something, you're fuzzy. So when I take off my glasses, it's just all fuzzy. If I put them on, you're clear. Okay, if I take them off and I cover one eye with an eye patch, you're really fuzzy. Okay, I need two eyes with uh, lenses to be clear. If you're not clear, you'll be fuzzy. Same with eyesight, same with understanding of the gospel. This is why the Reformation matters so much. The Reformation gives us gospel clarity. Last Wednesday, October 31st, was... Reformation Day. I'm so glad no one said Halloween. Who cares about Halloween? This is the important thing. Reformation Sunday. 501 years since the Reformation started. Now, you might think, well, whoopee doodah. No, no, no. Very, very important moment. You see, what was church like before the Reformation? Okay, imagine we're in a time capsule. We've zipped back 500 years um, ago and we're just before the Reformation. What was church like? You come, like many, many people, in fact, many more people, the whole village comes to church, and what do you experience? Well, all churches are conducted in Latin, and no one speaks Latin. You certainly don't speak Latin, so you can't understand anything that's going on. Um, The priest, of course, speaks Latin, and uh, you think, oh, that's okay, because they'll be singing. Actually, no, no, there's no singing, no singing at all, no congregational involvement at all, really. So um, you think, oh, well, well, what about the Bible reading? I can at least listen. No, you can't because, um, the, well, a number of reasons. The Bible that was there was in Latin. So if it was read, you couldn't understand it. And actually, you're illiterate. And actually, probably your priest is illiterate. And uh, there aren't lots of Bibles handed out because the printing press hasn't been invented. If you are lucky... Sounds like the four Yorkshire men, doesn't it? If you're, <laughs> that was luxury. Um, if, you, if you were lucky, you would have one Bible in your church, uh, but that's because some monk had painstakingly written out the whole thing in uh, lovely script, which no one could read. There you go. That was if you're in a wealthy church. Um, you, church was a spectator event. It wasn't participative. You watched the priest go through uh, the motions of the Catholic Mass. Um, And what was being communicated to you by that was that God was distant, he was unapproachable, um, and he was to be feared. There was no assurance of sins forgiven. The best you could do as a normal person was to go to Catholic Mass, to go to confession, maybe even enter the monastery. Um, When you're about to die, receive your last rites, give money to the church so that, with the vague hope, that by doing all of this stuff, at the end of, after, after death, you'd be able to burn off your sins in purgatory in less time, and then maybe enter heaven. Because God was distant, you, you looked for mediators who would represent you before God, be they the Pope or saints 
or Mary or the priests, but certainly not Christ. Christ was depicted as a little baby who was helpless or as a man stuck to a cross who had to be re-sacrificed. For your normal person, that's what it was like to be a Christian in the Christian world. The reason why our experience today is different is because the Protestant Reformation happened. That began when a young German monk named Martin Luther nailed a sheet of paper to the door of the university church in Wittenberg in Germany. And on that paper were 95 protests against the abuses and the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. You see, Martin Luther, he protested why it's because he had become a Christian. Um, He had become a Christian through the Word of God. He was a university uh, lecturer, and he was lecturing in New Testament at the University of Wittenberg, and he was lecturing on the Book of Romans, and he was translating from the original Greek text. And when he did it, he rediscovered the gospel of grace, which had been hidden for centuries. When Luther discovered this and published it, it took off like wildfire around the world. It became a movement whose rally cry was captured in five slogans which shook the world. Salvation is found in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. This is revealed through scripture alone and all this happens to the glory of God alone. This month we are going to be looking at each of those statements, not just to understand our history but to better understand our identity because we'll better understand the gospel, the gospel that defines us and shapes us and gives us our identity. So today we begin at the beginning. Salvation is found In Christ alone. Now, of course, this is what Jesus himself taught. The reformers didn't think it up. Jesus taught this. uh, Kids talk. John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation in Christ alone. Right from the beginning, this was the uh, message that was preached by the apostles, Jesus' disciples, after he'd risen from the dead. So, for example, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostle Peter declares... Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation in Christ alone. So this, at its heart, is the core of the gospel. At its time, in uh, 16th century Europe, it was a revelation. The Pope, you see, had been trying to raise funds to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, And so what he had done is to send out his salesmen throughout the villages of Europe. And your salesman would come into your village and he'd stand up on a cart in the the village square. And then he would do his spiel and he would sell papal indulgences. What were they? They were bits of paper like certificates with a mark of the Pope himself stamped on there, which declared that if you purchased one, as your coin hit the bottom of the collection box the soul of a deceased relative would fly out of purgatory into heaven, by your way into heaven. Luther, because he'd understood the gospel, knew that it was rubbish. Salvation was found not in the Pope, not in indulgences, but in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, today, our issue is not 
the Pope trying to raise money through the sale of indulgences. But nevertheless, we still feel the pressure to water down this truth, don't we? Because it sounds so arrogant. Salvation is found in Christ alone. On the one hand, we all face the pressure of inclusivism, which is the view that surely God will accept people from different religions as long as they are sincere. So for me, I think of Farah. Farah is um, a young Afghani girl whose family we befriended when our kids met at school. And um, her family uh, had to flee the Taliban when the Taliban entered Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. They were targeted because they had university education. They went to Pakistan for three years and then they made their way to Australia and to Black Forest where our kids were at school. We became friends. We were the only Anglo family to befriend them. Uh, We ate in each other's houses. We celebrated birthdays together. We got to know them. Uh, Because I wanted to share the gospel with uh, the kids at the school that we're in, I was working in Trinity City and I arranged a school excursion for everyone in in year six to come to Trinity City so that I could tell them the gospel. And Farah was there. She was sitting in the church hall. And I remember the day when I went through the gospel with her and I said that because uh, we need saving, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, raised him from life again, so that anyone who believes in him uh, will not perish but have eternal life. But you do need to believe in him because otherwise you'll perish. I hadn't said anything beyond that which Jesus himself said. All right? But because Farah was there and I knew her, I, rem- I remember the look in her eyes when I was saying this. And she realised that I was dishing on her Muslim faith. And it, I knew it sounded arrogant. A couple of weeks later, we were in their kitchen and I got a chance to say to Farah, How did, what did you think? And she was too polite. She was raised well. But her mother said it was arrogant. Now, you'll have felt that, the temptation to water down this exclusive truth. On the other hand, Christ alone can sound arrogant for people who hold the opposite view, who think it highly presumptuous for anyone to say that they're accepted by God at all. Because surely that is making claims about yourself, isn't it? To presume to say God accepts me. Aren't you, aren't you claiming something about yourself that you and yourself are more worthy than someone else? You know, um, I mean, isn't the best to um, just be humble and to um, be agnostic on this? I hope. You know, we hope that we'll be okay, but no one can say for sure. To say for sure is arrogant. Against those two arrogant pulls that we both feel, Christ, the apostles, the reformers, said positively, salvation is found in Christ, and negatively, it is found nowhere else. There is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. And we think, well, how on earth can that be true, really? How can that be true today? What makes Jesus so uniquely special that he alone has to be the saviour for all the world? Now, to answer that, we need to think of ourselves uh, as human beings and the, with other, all other human beings around the world and the plight of human beings. Um, we need to think of our opponents or our enemies, by which I mean that those things that stand against us to stop us coming to God. Well, the first is our ignorance of God and the way of salvation. Ignorance, of course, 
doesn't mean opinion. There's lots of people who have opinions about God, especially in Australia. I like to think of God as, well, that says actually nothing about what God truly is like. It just tells us what our opinion of him is. And people can be very opinionated, very strongly, but, but that doesn't mean that they're speaking the truth. We're ignorant. Without God revealing himself to us and telling us, we've just got conjecture, we've just got opinion, but that, that's a stab in the dark, isn't it? Then there's, of course, the reality of death. Now, all of us are going to die unless Jesus comes back beforehand. But, and we think, well, because everyone dies, it's a natural thing. Biblically, it's not natural. It's a punishment for sin. That's what it is. And none of us escape. What that means is that we are all under God's punishment. And as our bodies age, we actually bear it in our DNA. Um, we are of death. We are under God's punishment. How can we, who are under, you know, facing death, think that we could possibly live with God who is immortal? That doesn't make sense. Death is a problem. And also, thirdly, there is our uncleanness. God is holy. He's totally pure. He lives in radiant light. He is unstained by the darkness of sin. By contrast, we are unclean. None of us is without sin. Jesus said that God requires of us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love others as we would love ourselves. We fall so short of that, don't we? You know, measured against what God requires of us, at best our lives are a tapestry of compromise and blemished response. We are dirty. Okay. We are not clean. Fourthly, the Bible speaks of Satan. We have an external opponent who is set on our destruction. He is the accuser. He has power to accuse people before God. And because we've done wrong, he has legitimate power. Okay. Fifthly, we'd be rightly to fear him because we are powerless in ourselves to change the situation. Think, what sacrifice could you possibly offer which would erase your record and make you completely right with God? You have nothing that valuable. Nothing. We are powerless. Added to that, sixthly, is our lack of adequate representation before God. You know, someone who could stand in the very presence of God and plead your case like a good barrister. Someone who is on your side, who can argue for you, fight for you because you can't. Who can do it? None of us could do it for each other. We're all in the same boat. Who could do it? We are powerless in that respect. Seventh, um, even though we might redefine God in line with our standards, nevertheless, all of us, even by those standards, have objective guilt. We have done wrong against those standards. We have fallen short. We are like... Lawbreakers on the run. We might live it up drinking banana daiquiris in Rio or something or other and telling ourselves that life's okay, but the law will catch us out in the end. Okay, quite justly, beyond death is judgment and wrath. And even if, even if we were somehow to reform ourselves, what about our inconsistency? What about our weaknesses? What about the ever present temptation that we fall into? Now, I say all this not to be depressing, but realistic. We have significant opponents or enemies or barriers between us and God. And only by looking honestly at our need can we see why Christ alone is the answer. Because if we are going to have an effective saviour, 
he will have to deal with each of those opponents that stand against us one by one. If he doesn't deal with one of them, we are lost. All of them he has to deal with. And that is why, this is a long introduction, that is why Psalm 45 and Psalm 110 are so important for us. In our readings, we read of the Christ of God's design who meets our need at every single point. They'll give us descriptions of the one who is to come and we need them because they tell us what categories to use to understand what he did for us. They make sense of him as the one who deals point by point with every opponent or barrier between us and God. Well, let's get into it. Psalm 45. First of all, it paints an image of a warrior king. He has a sword on his side. He rides victorious into battle. His arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Nations fall down beneath his feet. Who is this person? Verse 6 speaks of his scepter, that is the rod of his rule. Uh, In other words, this warrior is a king. Only kings have scepters. And if we recoil at the image of him being a warrior king, blood splattered on his cloak, you know, all of this, the psalm won't allow us to recoil. It drips with extravagant praise of the king. He is physically beautiful, the most excellent of all men. He is clothed with splendor and majesty. The deeds of his right hand are awesome. Why? Because God has blessed him forever. Far from being a tyrant, his lips have been anointed with grace. He rules with justice. He rides forth on behalf of truth and humility and righteousness. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Who is this? I mean, it sounds like a human figure, but in verse 6, have a look. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Your throne, O God. He's divine, meaning he's, a, he's, he's God. But yet, verse 7, you love righteousness and hate, hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He's God. Your throne, O God, will last, but God, your God, has set you above your companions. He's God, but he's human. He's God and man. Here is the foundation of the doctrine of the incarnation where God had to take on human flesh to save us. If there's any doubt about whether this is reference to Jesus himself in particular, verse 6 and 7 are quoted explicitly in Hebrews chapter 1 as referring to Christ. So, so far we have two images of Christ, a warrior king and God, but then another image is added in the psalm, a bridegroom. Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm. It says it in the title, The end of the psalm describes his bride robed in a golden garment. And so Psalm 45 gives us three images of the Christ, a warrior king, God, a bridegroom. And if you were here in the last two weeks, straight away your mind goes to that wedding of Cana in Galilee where Jesus turned water into wine and what this meant about who he is for us. And to John chapter 3, the words of John the Baptist calling Jesus the bridegroom. Well, the background to that is Psalm 45 here. Okay. Psalm 110 also paints three images of the Christ to come, which overlap a bit but expand on the images from Psalm 45. 
Psalm 110 is special. Of all the Psalms, this is the one that's quoted most often in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. So clearly the New Testament writers want us to get these images in our minds so that we understand Jesus properly. So pay attention. First image, Christ is supreme in authority. David writes, The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So David's writing of someone greater than King David, than himself, who sits at the Lord's right hand, which is the, actually the ultimate position of power and authority. And his enemies, they're no threat. He rests his feet up on them. <laughs> no problem at all. He is supreme in authority, whoever this is. Next, he's a victorious king. As with Psalm 45, he has a scepter, a symbol of his rule, and he's victorious over his enemies. But further than Psalm 45, Psalm 110 speaks of a day of wrath, a day when he will crush kings and other rulers, and then he'll be refreshed, he'll lift his head up as from a brook. He's supreme in authority, he's victorious over all his enemies as a king. And then thirdly, he is an eternal priest. The Lord has sworn and has not changed his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And you go, oh, now I understand. Do you? All right. So if you've, if you've read Hebrews 7 recently, you'll remember. In the Old Testament, you couldn't be a king and a priest at the same time because they came from different tribes. Priests from the tribe of Levi, kings from the tribe of Judah. You're in one tribe or the other. You can't be a king and a priest. Except... There is one guy in the Old Testament, in Genesis 14, who was a king and priest. And he's sort of described as without beginning or end, so he's sort of eternal in nature. And now there's Psalm 110, which says there's someone who's going to come who will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That is a king who is a priest and they're eternal. So they're a king at the same time, but they're a priest also and they're eternal. If you want to read more, Genesis 14, Hebrews 7. Together, these two Psalms, Psalm 45 and 110, paint six images of Christ that God wants us to, to own. He's a warrior king. He's completely God. He's a bridegroom. He's supreme in authority. He's a victorious king. And he's also an eternal priest. And this describes who Christ is to us. And we've got to have those categories because then we'll be able to understand what he's done for us. And why salvation is found in Christ alone. I want you now to move from the Psalms and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Where the writer introduces us to God's majestic son. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is superior to theirs. And then what happens in chapter 1, there's a whole series of quotations from the Old Testament which make the point 
that God's majestic son is greater than any angel. And most notably for us, he quotes from two Psalms, Psalm 45 and Psalm 110. They're quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 in reference to Jesus, saying he is supreme. He is God's majestic son. There is no one greater than he. Hebrews chapter 1 um, mentions the son as divine. He is God. This is what enables him to be such a complete saviour and the only unique saviour. Because only one who is divine and a king and a priest can be victorious over every barrier, every opponent, every enemy that stands between us and God. That's why salvation has to be in Christ alone. And then, in chapter 2, he takes it a step further. And he says, actually, also, he needed to be a man. And all those barriers, opponents, enemies, which stand between us and God, are addressed explicitly in chapter 2. Have a look at chapter 2 now. The first opponent or barrier is our ignorance, but Christ overcomes it. So, whereas God only revealed himself partially in the past, in Christ God reveals himself more fully than he has ever before. In fact, you can't get a fuller revelation of God than what exists through Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that actually Christ announced to us the way to be saved. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, by Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So he announces the way of salvation. That means we're not ignorant. He's, he, he's dealt with that barrier. Because of Christ, we need not be ignorant of God nor of the way to be saved. Jesus announces it. He deals with that barrier. Second, opponent or barrier is death. We're all headed for death as a punishment, but verse 9 tells us that the reason that Jesus is now crowned with glory and honour is because he suffered death. Why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He didn't suffer death just for him. He suffered death for all of us so that by the grace of God, he could taste death for everyone. He's gone through it for us. So that death doesn't need to be the full stop at the end of our existence if we believe in Jesus. There is resurrection beyond death. There is life beyond death. Death is a door, not a brick wall that you slam up against. The next enemy is our uncleanness. Where we are unclean, he is the one, verse 11, who makes us holy. So we don't need to stand before God unclean. And that's why that imagery of bridegroom in, chapter 40, in Psalm 45 is so helpful. In that psalm, the bride's beauty is in the clothes that she wears, her garments. Because Christ is our bridegroom and we are his bride, and he's intimately connected to us, we don't need to stand in our own filthy rags before God. We get clothed in his righteousness. This is why his perfect life of obedience matters so much for us. He gives it to us. Only someone who's been fully human, made like us in every way, who's been tempted like us, but has lived righteously before God, never sinned, but bonded himself to us, can do this for us. Only Jesus. The next barrier is Satan, the devil, the accuser. 
But in verse 14, Jesus shared in our humanity. Why? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Now, how does he do that? Well, it's not by having a big sword fight with the devil where he goes head to head and shoves him through. He does it indirectly. He does it by breaking his power. He dies on the cross to bear our punishment, right? So that now, I mean, what is Satan going to say? That one deserves punishment. Well, I've already paid it. Get out. He, he disarms him. He breaks his power. Only he can do this. Which means, fifthly, verse 15, only Christ can set us free from the fifth barrier of the fear of death. He died to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Because, you see, if our accuser can't accuse, (laughs) because Christ's already taken the punishment for us, I mean, what is there to fear beyond death? There's no accuser over the line who's going to have it in for us, who's got any power. He takes the fear away. Especially when he overcomes the sixth barrier, of having no one to represent us before God in high places. You see, being made like us, fully human in every way, verse 17, and then being raised and exalted to God's right hand, because he's fully divine as well as fully human, and that's where he belongs. He and he alone is able to represent us before God. So what that means is we don't need to come to God through the Pope or through saints or through priests We can come to God directly through Jesus, our priest. In fact, it's kind of blasphemous to say that you need someone else. I mean, who is greater than Jesus? (laughs) Are you saying the Pope is? No. (laughs) Another saint? No. Jesus is all we need. Seventhly, because he and he alone has dealt with the seventh barrier, the massive barrier, of our guilt before God and God's wrath which stands against us. You see, by being a priest for us, what he did on the cross was he stood in as a mediator between us and God as a priest, but he was such a great priest. He he himself was the sacrifice. He offered himself as the sacrifice. No other priest does this. They offer something else. He offered himself as the sacrifice. And that was such a precious sacrifice, so all-complete, that he was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He turned away God's anger from us. You don't need to fear God's anger. Jesus' death turned it away completely. And because he himself suffered when he was tempted, finally, last one, he's able to deal with the last barrier of our own inconsistency and weakness. Verse 18 Because he's been through what we've been through, he's able to help those who are tempted in their time of need. Only Christ does this, right? No other religion has a saviour that gets anywhere close to this. He is victorious over every enemy or opponent that's between us and God. He is the victorious warrior king who's fought all our enemies on the cross. He is the priest who makes full atonement by the sacrifice of himself He is the priest in the highest of places who represents us before God and helps us in our time of need. He is our complete saviour in every single respect. Therefore, he's the only saviour we need. He's the only one who's able to save us completely. 
the reformers had it right. Salvation is found in Christ alone. This is what the Bible teaches. They didn't make it up. They rediscovered what was already written. In Christ, we can stand before God, our punishment paid in full, washed clean by his blood, clothed in his righteousness, represented before him, no longer afraid. Isn't that magnificent? Is it arrogance to believe that? No, it's not the right word, is it? Because it's got nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with him. That's not arrogance, that's confidence. And that's God's gift for everyone who believes the gospel. When you realise how wonderful Christ is as the saviour, you realise the other views are arrogant. You know, it's arrogant to think that people from other religions can just stand before God without faith in Jesus. I mean, how is that possible? It's arrogant to think that you can just take him or leave him. It doesn't matter how people come to God because there's lots of different ways. That's incredibly arrogant because it says God got it wrong. The sacrifice of Jesus wasn't necessary. The cross was in vain. How arrogant to say that. As is the view to say that, oh, you can't know for sure whether you're going to be saved or not. That's arrogant because what's that saying about what Jesus has done for us and won for us? It's saying his death didn't work. It's saying his priestly ministry is ineffective. He's saying Satan still has power to accuse. It's saying Christ hasn't dealt with all our enemies. We've got to have gospel clarity. And the wonderful thing about studying the Reformation and church history is you see the change it makes and the confidence it gives people and how errors and fear are put to rest once Christ is proclaimed and believed in, that our salvation is found in him and him alone. That's our identity. That's our unity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity that the scriptures give us. And we pray that if we have been trusting in someone, something else, if we have been doubting in our own hearts because we've been looking to ourselves and wondering if we're good enough, help us to believe in Jesus, our all-sufficient saviour, who won for us what we could not win for ourselves and is totally able, totally complete, totally sufficient to save us. We praise you for him and to him be the glory. Amen.